Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for one another. And uh, thank you for um, being part of your people together. And we want to pray your blessing on the children and the, the young people in the other, part, other parts of the building, that you'll speak to them and uh, give them what they need to hear and uh, help them to, to um, be glad to belong and be part of what they're um, part of today. And we pray that you'd speak to us through your word and that your word by your spirit um, would have its effect um, in us. Amen. Um, so when I chose this theme, or when we chose this theme of generosity um, as our way of um, leading up to um, Count Me In, um, our um, few weeks in June when we're thinking about how uh, we sort of can belong and be part of the, the people of all souls, um, there were two immediate um, problems that, that were in my mind. One is the moment you start thinking about generosity, or at least the moment I start thinking about generosity, the first thing I think of um, is my wallet. And uh, I, it, as soon as I announced the title this morning in the, in the service, there were at least one or two um, people that looked slightly startled. I'm sure they thought I was about to come around with a collecting plate. Um, uh, you could see them checking for the exits. Um, but we do sort of assume that this idea of generosity or a life lived generously must be primarily to do with money, because that's so often how we use the word. Um, and therefore, because we think of it as to do with money, we tend to think of it as to do with one little bit of life, as being one particular Christian virtue, one particular way um, of living. I want to suggest, though, that actually when the Bible talks about generosity, uh, it isn't talking about simply one little niche, one little part of life. It's actually talking about something that goes right to the heart of what it is to be a follower of God. And actually, it's a theme that stretches all the way through from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end. And yes, sure, it's, it certainly uh, is not less than what we do with our wealth, but it's certainly a lot more than what we do with what we have. And uh, we're going to simply use, um, let Luke um, chapter 18, this um, little parable that Jesus tells, we're going to allow Luke to um, see a little bit more about what generosity is, what sort of people are generous, and, um, and actually how our generosity of heart uh, sort of lifts the curtain on how we are with God and how we understand his work in us. So let me read uh, these few verses, um, Luke chapter 18, uh, verse 9 onwards, and uh, then we'll, we'll pile in and see what it's got to say to us. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's part of a pattern that Luke loves to tell us about. Um, You go back to Luke chapter 7, and you've got the prostitute, and the Pharisee, and it's the prostitute who actually makes connection with Jesus to the extent that it changes her life, not the Pharisee. You've got Luke chapter 15, uh, which is the story of the prodigal son, where it's 
Um, not the older son has been working incredibly hard, and you might think has earned his stripes and earned his brownie points with his dad. It's the younger son who ends up having the party at the end of the story. And then here, you've got the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, we've got to dive slightly into to the culture of the day to understand why this is such a strong contrast and why Jesus tells the story like he does. Um, looking around, I know that there are no tax collectors here, so I guess I can say freely... Even in this culture and today, we don't tend to think of tax collectors as the sort of epitome of a role model or goodness. Not so much because of the people themselves, but because nobody likes paying their taxes and none of us like our tax returns. Roll the clock back 2,000 years and we're on an altogether different planet, an altogether different scale. Because the way the Romans did taxes was much more like extracting the spoils of war. This wasn't simply a government taking what it felt it needed in order to provide health or education or social security. This was an occupying force determined to suck dry all of the countries that they had invaded and to bring the spoils of those victories back to Rome. And the way it did it was to impose taxes. And the taxes they imposed weren't simply the odd 5 or 10 or 20 or even 40%. These were huge sums demanded of very poor people with the sole purpose of lining the coffers in Rome. So how were they going to extract those? Well, they had to recruit local Jewish men. The problem is that actually they were collaborators. They were as viciously and vehemently um, opposed. They were seen as as vile specimens, as might have been looked upon the the collaborators in Nazi-occupied Europe in the Second World War. the, The strength of feeling was like that. It was not just, I don't like paying my taxes. It was, these people are collaborating with an enemy-occupying force. And they did so at the point of a spear. Uh, Rome basically did a deal with these tax collectors. There was no other way they could get them on the payroll. The only way they could do it was the offer of money. And they would say to them, look, you collect what we demand, we'll provide the soldiers, the backup, literally the point of a spear, and you can take whatever salary you want from their pockets. That was the deal. Can you imagine the level of hatred? All that hatred against the Romans for invading their country poured out upon these collaborators who had agreed to extract the spoils of war from their fellow countrymen and women. The tax collectors were utterly the epitome of godless, vile, selfish brutality. Tax collectors. Now, our problem reading this parable is that we don't tend to think of the Pharisees as much better. The Pharisees to us today, uh, if you call somebody a Pharisee, what you're basically saying of them is, you're a bit holier than thou. You're only interested in rules and regulations. Um, Somebody who has a Pharisaical approach is somebody who who is so interested in the details of rules and regulations. They show no grace. They show no compassion. Actually, 2,000 years ago, it wasn't like that at all. In fact, the Pharisees were seen as a reforming, godly, spiritual movement. Um, The context is that they were um, trying to roll back uh, the godlessness of the Sadducees. They were the religious leaders of the day. They didn't really believe in anything spiritual at all. They didn't believe in life after death. Uh, They didn't believe very much in uh, in rules and regulations. They were really what today we might call empty suits. They were in it for what they got out of it. That was their reputation at the time. Clearly, I wasn't there. But the Sadducees had a reputation for simply being there for the money, for the prestige, for the religious pride. The Pharisees, on the other hand, well, they'd come in to reintroduce God's law. 
to reintroduce spiritual practice and prayer and giving, we must note. They gave 10% of everything that they earned, did the Pharisees. They'd reintroduced something from the Old Testament, and, and they gave it away. Now, there are many Christians who aim to do the same today, but if that's something you've done, you'll know that 10% is a significant portion of your income. You give away 10%, and it will generally mean there is some stuff you can't do or buy or have that you otherwise could. It's a a noticeable amount. In other words, the Pharisees were the good guys 2,000 years ago. They were more spiritual, they were more prayerful, they were more generous than the other religious leaders of the day. So Jesus tells this parable, and he pits good guy against bad guy. He pits Pharisee against tax collector. And the crucial thing about this story is that the wrong one goes away justified. Justified simply means put right with God or in the right. God declares the wrong one. He doesn't declare the Pharisee right, despite the fact that the Pharisee points out that he's, he's generous and prayerful and a good man. It's the tax collector. In other words, generosity may be important to God, but simply being outwardly, physically, philanthropic clearly isn't enough. Because the Pharisee beats the tax collector hands down. The Pharisee's given away 10%. The tax collector has simply raked it in. The clear implication of Jesus' parable is that God is doing what God has always done. doesn't matter where you slice the Bible, God always does the same thing. God says, I look on the heart. Do you remember the story of um, King David when he's a shepherd boy and Samuel the prophet is sent by God to go and anoint and choose the next king of Israel. So it's been Saul. Uh, Saul is making a mess of it. God knows that they need a new king and so he sends Samuel to the family of Jesse who has a whole load of sons and Samuel says, well, pray them in front of me and I'll choose the king that God has for Israel. And the very first son that comes in front of him, who's the oldest, Samuel looks out, and the Bible tells us he looks at him, he goes, fantastic, easy job. He's tall, handsome, he's got that sort of film star quality. I suppose that was the way he put it at the time. But, you know, he's got that sort of charisma that will make him a great king. And and he goes to God, so it's him then. And God says, no, you've got it wrong. And the words that God says to Samuel are along these lines. You look on the outward appearance, I look on the heart. The Pharisee is convinced that the outward actions, his giving, his worship, not being like the hoi polloi, was enough. Whereas God looked on the heart. So what's going on with these two hearts, the Pharisee and the tax collector? Well, actually, that comes down to generosity as well. Because when you read what the Pharisee says, the Pharisee says to God, hey God, look at how generous I am to you. Look at how good I am. In other words, look at what I've done for you. You must think I'm great. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you my, um, uh, my desires, even my hunger. And I give a tenth of all I get. I give you my money. In other words, look how generous I am. That's what's going on in his heart. He honestly thinks he's generous towards God. 
he knows it's important to God, and so that's what he comes to God with. Uh, if you like, he, he brings forward to God a gift, and he says, look, here's my fasting, here's my giving, this is who I am. Whereas, the tax collector recognizes that actually he hasn't been generous to God or anyone. He is the one in need of God's generosity. He asks God for mercy. And what is mercy but an act of generosity? If generosity is, by definition, the act of giving without expectation of return, the act of giving without expectation of return then the Pharisee has not been generous at all because he's given with the expectation that God will return the favor. The tax collector, he knows he's messed up. He knows his heart is far from God. He knows he's not been generous. He puts out empty hands and he says to God, I need you to be generous to me. I don't have anything to give in return. Have mercy on me. It's a repeated pattern that those in Luke's Gospel and throughout the Gospels, who know that they need God's generosity always fare better than those who think they've been generous to God. Sometimes it's very subtle. It doesn't have to be money. It doesn't have to be fasting. There will be all sorts of ways in which we start to think we're doing God a favor, where God must be really pleased with me today, because, and start there as if we're the ones who initiate things, as if we're the ones who, who start the transaction. And God goes, wow, you've done well. Now I'm going to be generous to you. Whereas we know that grace says it's always the other way around. See, the tax collector, compared with the Pharisee, has lived a singularly unpleasant life. That's why this doesn't make sense on the face of it. But the tax collector knows he needs God's generosity. And the fact of it is, they both need God's generosity. You could say, it's like saying these are two sick people. They both need the treatment. They both need to receive what will make them well. But only one of them recognizes the symptoms. Only one of them puts out the hand to take the medicine. Only one of them says, I'm sick. I need to be well. And that's the dividing line that Luke lays down, and in the words of Jesus, Jesus lays down time and time again. The issue is not where we are in this scale of goodness. The issue is whether we recognize we need God's generosity towards us. Generosity, true generosity, is giving without expectation of return. And therefore, true generosity only starts, can only start, when we recognize we are recipients of grace, when we recognize we're the ones to receive. I love the way Luke puts together his gospel. He's no fool. He's a brilliant writer. He's organized his material superbly. And what he does in Luke 18 is it's like he gives us the theory that then is worked out in practice in Luke 19. So in Luke 18, Luke deliberately reminds us of the story that Jesus tells about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And at this point, if you like, we don't really know what happens to the tax collector next. We just know he goes home justified. But then in Luke 19, we meet Zacchaeus. Now, you'll remember Zacchaeus, I suspect, from umpteen Sunday school lessons, the little man who was up the tree. Uh, And not just up a tree because he was short, actually, almost certainly up the tree looking for Jesus because the crowd, there's no way they'd have let him through. Zacchaeus would have been, almost certainly, the single most reviled, hated man in that village. Uh, And if it wasn't for the Roman soldiers and the personal protection of Rome, he would have been in severe danger of his life. 
and he hears that Jesus is coming, and so he has to climb up a tree, because the crowd won't let him through, to see Jesus. And Jesus sees Zacchaeus, sees into his heart, and says, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I want to come to your house today. There is not a religious person living at the time who would have chosen to go to Zacchaeus' house for tea. There's not one of them would have solidified their reputation. There's not one of them that would have been seen dead with a man like that. In fact, if you look in um, chapter 19, just the other side of that page, verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter, to groan, to complain about Jesus. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Nobody else would have done it. And you know what happens to Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus looks down into his hands, as it were, metaphorically, and sees that Jesus has given him this incredible gift that he didn't deserve. And suddenly what pours forth is generosity, real generosity. He says, I'm going to pay back everything that I've stolen, and more. Because when you receive generously from God, when your heart is full up with what God has given you, his love and his grace and his forgiveness and his presence That's the only thing that unlocks true generosity. That's what makes it possible. There's one more thing, though. Because Jesus, in choosing to go to tea with Zacchaeus, spends not money, he's not generous with a gift of drachmas, or what would they be? Um, I don't know, whatever the um, currency of the day was. He's generous with his reputation. He spends his reputation on Zacchaeus. His reputation will have plummeted in that crowd. Up to then, they're cheering him in. He's he's the local celebrity. He's the local hero. He does healings. He preaches wonderfully. Fantastic. What a wonderful man. Want to follow him. Jesus then says to Zacchaeus, I'm going to go to your house for tea. And the crowd, you know, if you could see some of, you know, graph of what they thought of him, it plummets. He spends his reputation. You see, you and I will have many currencies that we spend in our generosity. You can be generous with your time. It's a phrase that we use. You spend time with people. But do I only spend time with people when I think I'm going to get a return? We spend our reputation. Will I only be with people that it's good to be seen with? we give our hospitality. But will I only be hospitable? Will I only let people into my space where I'm going to get a return of what I want? Friendship, reputation. They're going to treat my house right, whatever it is. There will be something in our lives that we would far rather give money generously than it. Time, space, energy, reputation. There are many currencies that we can be generous or selfish with. And when you look at the life of Jesus, every time he came across somebody in need, he gave. He gave his time to people. He gave away his reputation. He gave himself physically for others because he was on the receiving end of grace. He knew the generosity of his Father in heaven. So, yeah, sure, generosity has to do... I'm sure, with how we give away our money. But sometimes giving away the money is the easy bit. Sometimes giving away money is easier than giving away my time 
or my reputation, or my status, or my friendship, or my hospitality. So over these next few weeks, as we think about what it means to have a life lived generously, we will talk about money, but we will also talk about our hospitality and our friendships uh, and and the people that we spend our time with and how we uh, do family life. And we're going to ask what it is to live a life that flows out of being recipients of grace, that God is generous to me, therefore I'll be generous to others. We're going to come to communion. And as I, I mean, I've said it so many times, but I'm going to say it again. As the thing I perhaps love most about the movement of communion is that when I come up to communion, I come with empty hands. And God fills those hands, not just with bread, not just with a cup with wine, but actually he pours into me generously his love, his grace, his forgiveness. And actually, I may not feel I've got much money in the bank. I may feel I've got very little time or energy or space. But I look in my heart and I find that God has poured himself into me and enabled me to be generous with what I have.